I was in youth ministry for about 12 years. 12 long... No, I'm just kidding. I was in youth ministry for about 12 years and uh, had a great time, loved it, and uh, found in youth ministry this concept of the lateral thinking puzzle. Everybody here uh, has heard of this kind of concept. If you don't know it by name, it's the kind of thing, it's a situation puzzle where you have the results, you have the end of the story, and, and, and you're not told how that happened. You just ask yes or no questions to, to determine all the circumstances that led to that result. So lateral thinking puzzle is something that we would be doing on a van ride for hours on end with a dozen teenagers in a van off to some Timbuktu place in the middle of nowhere to do missions work for uh, a week. And you get bored and you're doing the states uh, game, you're doing the, the alphabet game, you're doing 100 bottles of Coke, not beer, we do 100 bottles of Coke. And, you know, you're doing those kinds of things and then you eventually get to this lateral thinking puzzle thing. So I want to give you an example of one and see if you can figure it out. The first one's real easy. A man walks into a field, walks into a field, and there are three items lying together on the middle of this field on the ground. There's a carrot, a few pebbles, and a smoking pipe. Man walks into a field, middle of the field, three items laying together on the ground, a carrot, a few pebbles, and a smoking pipe. What happened? I think I heard a couple people. Snowman, that's right. It was a snowman that melted. And no, his name was not Olaf. It's a Disney movie. It's a Disney movie. I'm going to start singing those songs in my head. Just let it go. You are pathetic people. <clears throat> the second one is, is considerably harder, and this is kind of a classic example of a situation puzzle like this. I'm going to read this. I want to make sure I get it right. There's a man who lives in an apartment building, and every day in the morning, on his way to work, he rides up the elevator. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why I'm reading it, so I can get it right. A man lives in an apartment building, and every day in the morning on his way to work, he rides the elevator from the 20th floor down to the ground floor. So that's what he does every morning on the way to work, 20th floor all the way down to the ground floor. But when he comes home, he rides up halfway to the 10th floor, gets off, climbs the 10 flights of stairs to his apartment. So he leaves, he goes down all 20, he comes back, he comes up 10, and then walks the other 10, except for two times. Number one, when it's raining, or number two, if there's someone else in the elevator, in which case he rides all the way up. So why does the man do that? It's good. Janet remembers this illustration from about three years ago. <laughs> the short man can't reach any buttons past the 10th floor. So when it's raining, he has his umbrella with him. Or when somebody else is in the elevator, they push the 20th floor and he goes all the way up. So that's the solution to that one. Kudos to Janet Forte. Here's a last lateral thinking puzzle. And it's what we see in the gospel narratives. It's what we see at the end of John 20. In basic terms, the lateral thinking puzzle here is on Friday night, a man dies, is buried that same night. Come three days, come Sunday, the tomb is empty and the body is gone. What happened? Now, to answer this question, 
we have to approach this a little bit like an investigator or a journalist or a detective might answer. You have to ask these kinds of questions to take the pieces of evidence that we have from four different gospel accounts. It's one of these things that all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all approach and all have some perspective on. And we have to do it this way. We have to do it this way for a couple reasons. Number one, in each gospel, We get this condensed version of the whole story that's told from one vantage point. It doesn't mean they're contradictory. It just means they're told from different vantage points. Secondly, establishing the clarity of the evidence for the resurrection is super important. If we do not get this lateral thinking puzzle, so to speak, if we do not get this one right, then the reason we're here is in vain, friends. The reason we're gathered, the reason we have faith in Christ doesn't mean anything if the resurrection can't be corroborated as true. 1 Corinthians 15 has a cool passage here we're going to put up on the screen for you. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul goes on a couple more verses, three verses from here to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, if we don't get this puzzle correct, if the evidence isn't there for us to say, I can give my assent and faith to this resurrection account, then our faith is in vain. And in fact, it's saying Christ's atonement, his making up for our sin doesn't work. If resurrection isn't there, it doesn't work. No resurrection, no atonement for sin. So your faith and atonement for sin are what hang in the balance of us getting this story right. So we're going to do that a little bit today mostly doing it through John 20, picking up from a few of the other Gospels along the way so that we can get a clear picture of what's going on and then we'll we'll make some application to our lives about the significance, the why this is important piece. So let's go ahead and answer the question of when first. Look at John John 20, verse 1. When did this take place? And what can we learn from asking this when question? John 20, verse 1. We're going to stick around verse 1 a lot for a little while here, and then we'll uh, speed up a bit. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. Now press pause for a second here. In basic terms, the answer to this uh, when question is easy. <laughs> it's early, and it's Sunday. It's early Sunday morning. And we know that that's the basic answer to the question. In fact, all four of the Gospels are very clear to point out those two things, that it was early and that it was Sunday morning. This, this thing where it says the first day of the week there in verse 1, it says, now on the first day of the week, that's a, a Hebrew idiom. It's a, a Hebrew way of saying Sunday. The first day of the week was always Sunday. Now, I want to tell you something a little more specifically here. That's really cool because this is uh, an interesting thing about all four of the gospel accounts. This is a pretty cool tip off at the beginning of the gospel accounts that tells us that they used certain language to tell us that something cool is going on, something new is going on here. All four gospels do this. It says now on the first day of the week and that first day of the week thing is there as a way of saying this. Every one of the Gospels states very clearly that it was the first day for a reason. 
They could have easily said it was the third day after Jesus' death. All of Jesus' own predictions were saying, on the third day, I will arise. Four times he says that. Uh, A couple other times in the Gospels it's mentioned, but four times he says that in the Gospels. We have an example here in Mark 8.31 where it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. All of the Gospel writers note that at a certain time in Jesus' teaching, He began to teach in a different way that says, I'm going to, after three days, rise again. So, so when they come to the resurrection narrative, it would have been totally natural for them to say, after the third day he rose again. After the third day he rose again. After the third day he rose again. But not one of them does. None of them does that. Every single one of them says the same thing. They say, the next day. On the first day. day. Matthew 28 in one translation says it this way. It was early on Sunday morning as the new day was dawning. The verb used to describe the day is a dawning day. It's a new day. This is important for us because it helps us establish that why we worship on Sunday, why we're gathered here today, is because we worship on Resurrection Day. We are people of a new demonstration of God's power that demonstrates His power over death and sin. His victory is demonstrated by the empty tomb. And that's why we're gathered here today and not some other day. There's a long New Testament tradition of this. If you want to look up in these places, I'll tell you in just a second. It also establishes this scriptural precedent, this reason why we're Sunday worshipers. It says this in Acts 20, verse 7. If you want to write this down, it's cool ones to look up. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16.2 and Revelation 1.10. Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16.2 and Revelation 1.10. Those help establish scripturally this Saturday-Sunday uh, issue. So the Gospel writers are saying here, even just by that little phrase, the first day of the week, they're establishing that this is a new day. A new day has dawned. Now, who are the characters in this scene? The second question, who is it that's involved here? We're still in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John begins his account with a focus on Mary Magdalene. But from the other Gospels, we know that at least four other women were also present at the resurrection. In fact, we know from verse 2 here where it says this. It says, We do not know where they have laid him. That's... Uh, the women speaking to the disciples saying that we, plural, don't know where they have laid him. So another important detail is that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four Gospels as the first witness. That's, that's significant. That's important. Because in that tradition of the day, for something to be held as true from an eyewitness in a Jewish court required two males. Females didn't even get... to to be justified as legitimate eyewitnesses in most Jewish courts. And so it's significant that all four Gospels who are trying to tell us what actually happened and not necessarily make something up as the world says that they are, it's important that they're giving us this detail that all four Gospels are saying that Mary Magdalene is the first witness. They also take pains to to demonstrate the eyewitness testimony by by showing that two males were a part of it. Look at this. It says, verse 2, So she ran... This is Mary Magdalene. 
she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This is probably John, the one whom Jesus loved. So Peter and John were also important witnesses here. We know that uh, this description of the other disciple whom Jesus loved was the uh, Apostle John who wrote this uh, gospel. There are 14 references to John as the disciple uh, who Jesus loved. Uh, That's John's own name for himself uh, from Jesus. It's an intimate name for himself. Now, the rest of the answer to this who question comes toward the end. Uh, You can just look there real quick. In verse 12, it says two angels in white. Uh, In verse 14, it introduces Jesus there. Verse 18 tells us the rest of the disciples were eventually on the scene and maybe even the larger group of disciples beyond the original 12. So let's ask this next question about what? We're going to spend some significant time here on this question. Jump back to verse 1 again, and then we'll, uh, we'll jam through the next eight, nine verses here. It says this, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene and her crew uh, came early to embalm the body because there wasn't time to buy spices uh, after sundown on Friday, and they wouldn't be available to sell on Sabbath for Saturday, so they had to wait till Sunday to go and uh, embalm the body. We know this from Mark 16.1, if you want to look that up later, Mark 16.1. So they're on their way, and they're going to embalm the body, and they must have thought, we know this from Mark 16.3, they must have thought, uh-oh, <laughs> Who's going to roll away that huge sealing stone? It's a huge stone that was rolled over the tomb. Uh, we know this from Mark 16:3, And that's a valid question. We know it's a valid question for them because archaeologists have unearthed uh, over a thousand tombs from that era and from that area. And on average, a tomb from a wealthy tomb like this that was brand new would have a stone in the front that's four and a half diameter. Four and a half feet in diameter. So a huge stone like that, a, a honking rock. And so they're, they're approaching the tomb. They're about to embalm it. Uh, they're worried about their, their inability to roll the stone away, which is a valid question, of course. And then they find, surprise, verse 1, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Which means the first problem is solved, but now we have a bigger one, which is the same question. The stone is rolled away. The door is open. So they wonder what happened. They're trying to figure out the intricacies of this sort of situation puzzle that they're presented with. We find from Matthew 28, if you can write that down, look this up later. Matthew 28, 4, we find out that the angels appeared in a flash of light and the soldiers who guarded the tomb were lying on the ground looking like they were dead. So when Mary Magdalene and the crew got there, they found the body gone. And we know that when you look into a new tomb like this that was unused, In a moment's notice, you could easily tell if there was a body in there. We we think about a tomb as something that goes way deep down in there. But a new tomb like this would have looked something like this with three benches on the outside and the kind of thing you could just peer into and, and, and you could tell at a moment's notice if there was anybody in there. What they would do is they would excavate the tomb further and, and, and sort of keep digging to put shelves for more bodies to be in there, and uh, they would do that later on. But, but a brand new tomb like this, you could just peer in at a moment's notice and, and know that there was nobody in it. Now, the transition in John 20 from verses 1 to 2 makes it seem like uh, it could give the impression 
that they wouldn't have had time to look in and see it. Look at this. It says this in verses 1 to 2. It says, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now keep reading. She said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. When Mary Magdalene shows up to tell Peter and John, she makes clear that the body is gone. So that explains why they're running. That explains why they're in a hurry in the next verse, verse 3. It says, Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. And then he says this, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I I don't know why he feels the need to tell us that detail. Apparently, uh, John is in better shape than Peter or something like that. Uh, it could also be uh, it could also be that by that time, Peter was established as the leader of the disciples. There are a number of reasons why uh, that was the case. And so in deference to Peter, he might have stood there and waited for Peter to come. He also he also is well aware of Jewish law and may be waiting for another eyewitness to corroborate the story. So John is maybe just being smart and not just <laughs> egotistical. So. Verse 5, stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, again, this is a small detail, but he wanted to get this right. John probably wanted to let Peter go in first to corroborate it, and because he was the leader of the disciples. So look at verse 6. So Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. John's adding details that some of the other Gospels don't. And it's important because in that time, there were grave robbers. There were people who would steal those, uh, those rocks that would seal the tomb. And the emperor himself uh, had an edict against people who would do that. Those who would destroy tombs, remove bodies, or, or remove the sealing stones. So, verse 7, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. John's just adding more details. Then verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And then it says this, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. For the first disciples, and even today for us, resurrection makes explicit what they hadn't understood. Resurrection makes explicit what they hadn't understood. And I don't know if you're anything like me. I assume you probably are. I want to know that the details are correct before I give my life to it. And resurrection is God's way of saying, I'm going to make this explicit so that part of your life that you don't yet understand is made explicit by my resurrection. What do we mean by that? Let me say it this way. I know that my heart's cry in ministry, one of the the prayers I've long had is that I, I want to be in ministry just to see people's lives changed. I want to be a part of the body of believers because life transformation is the goal of this gathering. If life transformation is demonstrated 
by the people of God. Then a hurting world, a lost world, people who don't believe the claims of resurrection can see in the lives of the people of God resurrection power. Which is to say, your life is the testimony of resurrection. Your very life is called to be the testimony of a resurrected Christ to a world that won't get the details and believe. We could have all the details right. We could have a logical argument. I could sit here for hours on end and tell you another four dozen reasons why the resurrection is true up here. But unless I live my life, unless you live your life in ways that demonstrate that what happened actually happened, nobody's going to believe a thing. God gave us the Spirit to be with us. He said, it's better that I leave so that you could be animated, inhabited by the Spirit of God to live with resurrection power here and now. That's what was established at resurrection. Look at Romans 8, 11. Super cool verse. Just super cool verse. Romans 8, 11. Turn with me there if you've got a second. Romans 8, 11. It says exactly what I've just been telling you. It says this, Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, lives in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, your current bodies of flesh, this side of heaven, right now, not the all, not, the not yet body that you will receive in glorified form at heaven, but this is your mortal body in the flesh now, today. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And then it says this, through His Spirit who dwells in you, here, now, today. The goal of resurrection is for you and I to live lives that demonstrate in the flesh that is animated by the Spirit of God that resurrection happened. That's a crazy high calling. That's a crazy important calling. That's the kind of thing nobody but a resurrected Christ can call us to because no one else can equip you to live that kind of life. You and I, if you know what it's like to reach the end of yourself, have reached the end of your works time and time and time again. You cannot possibly live that well by yourself. It will each and every time infinitely fail. And people will look at your life and they'll go, that's not resurrected power. That's you. That's not resurrected power. That's your own attempt. Resurrected power is when somebody looks at you and they say, that's life transformation. 
that you can't make happen unless God does it. And it is only, it is only that kind of life transformation that lost people look at and they give their lives to Jesus as a result of. There was a a young engineer who was sent to Ireland by his company for a two-year stint to set up uh, a factory. And this young engineer had been dating his girlfriend for quite a while, and they were planning to get married and uh, didn't have enough money to put a down payment on a house. So he went off for a couple of years for this great job so that he could come back to the States and they could uh, settle down and buy a home and, and be married. Well, they mailed back and forth. This is back in the day before. uh, 37 text messages per day from your significant others. And so they mailed back and forth. And uh, she was saying, I I hope hope you're focused on coming back for me. And he said, don't worry, honey. Uh, I'm all about you. I'm keeping myself for you. And she said, keep your eyes off those Irish lasses. And so uh, he got a got a package in the mail that had a note and a harmonica with it. And the note with the harmonica said, I'm sending this to you so you can play it and have something to take your mind off those Irish girls. And the engineer replied in the next in the next post, thanks for the harmonica. I'm practicing every night while thinking of you. Well, at the end of the two years, he came back to the States to meet the family and there she was and he runs up to embrace her (laughs) and she holds up the resisting hand and says hold on just a minute there bub before we get to kissing and hugging let me hear you play that harmonica (laughs) friends we live among people who want to hear us play the harmonica we, 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 can, we can give them fact after fact after fact after fact about the logical necessity of a resurrection and how the four Gospels fit together. But unless our lives demonstrate the truth of the power of resurrection, nobody hears a thing we say. Friends, your life is the testimony of a risen Christ. God made it that way because your life only shows the work of God when He's the one animating you. I know for my life, I've come to the end of myself time and time and time again, trying to hold up my works like I could be good enough. Like like I could demonstrate in my own flesh, in my own strength, by my own power, to anybody who wants to look at my life, that they could say, yes, Jesus is real because I look at you doesn't take long for people to see that that was me. I wasn't the power of a resurrected Christ. He wasn't the one making that change in me. And friends, that change for us happens when we give ourselves in humility to the power of God. It won't happen otherwise. You don't give yourself to God out of ego, out of pride, out of self. 
You give yourself to God when you've reached the end and you realize nothing I could ever do will bring me in relationship with a perfect, holy, infinite God. Your life is called to be the testimony of a risen Christ, friends. Let's pray together.